Okay, Saints, Matthew chapter 13. Let's bow our hearts. Father, as we again enter into just this beautiful gospel, that which portrays so much of your Son. And Lord, as we've been looking at, that he is the King, he's our King, and we know he's the King of Kings. Lord, again, we ask that we would have a deeper understanding, not only of, of your heart, but of our own, and of the word that you want to speak to us this evening. There's so many truths, Lord, that sometimes we don't want to listen to something new because we think we already know it, and yet there's so many things, Lord, that we just see through a glass and darkly. We, we see through that mirror dimly, and we don't fully understand because we're finite. But yet through your Spirit, you can open up our minds and open up our hearts and open up our understanding to you and to our own hearts as well. And tonight, Lord, we're asking that very same thing, that you would meet with us. And as we've been praying, Lord, just come and wash our feet, um, cleanse us, Lord, of just those things that we've picked up through the world and again put our focus back on you. Knit our hearts to you. So simply give us ears to hear what your spirit would speak to us, your church. We ask it in Jesus' name. And all the saints of God said, Amen. 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 Well, at this point in Matthew chapter 13, what we've been looking at is the conflict with the king. And after they had rejected um, the, the Lord, he now begins to bring these parables. And within these parables, what he's actually, in a sense, declaring is, if you want to reject me, here is the result of rejecting me. This is the cost of rejecting me. And I think it's important to make that note that we haven't left that point um, where we're still in this area of the conflict of the king, now he's beginning to dialogue with them through the use of parables and trying to get them to understand what's going to be that cost of rejection, what's, you know, what will happen if you continue to have that conflict, not allowing the king to come, but wanting to him to, um, to depart and to leave. So it begins in Matthew chapter 13, verse 1. On the same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea. And great multitudes were gathered together to him. So he got into a boat and he sat and the whole multitude stood on the shore. Then he spoke many things to them in parables saying. So at this point, I want to pause it for just a second. Jesus, he goes out of the house. He's standing by the sea and these multitudes now gather around him. It's important to realize that, remember back in chapter 12, verse 9, where it said that now when he departed from there, he went to their synagogue. Jesus here, in a sense, has been, you know, re they are rejecting him. They're not wanting him to go into their places of worship. So Jesus is making every place that he is a place for worship. And people are recognizing, I don't have to go into a building. I don't have to go into a synagogue. And I love what they're seeing. They said, I need to go to Jesus. I need to go to him. I want to grow. I want to mature. I need to go to him. And so what he does is he simply gets into a boat and, um, and he sits and the multitude then stands on the shore. Now I want you to note that, that Jesus here, he gets into a boat, goes out on the shore. What happens is if you've ever been on a lake in the, in the quiet of the morning, you realize that sound just echoes and echoes and echoes and it bounces off. 
a, a lake is a very natural amplifier. Um, there are some people who talk very quietly. I'm not in that group, and so I don't need a whole lot of amplification. However, um, if you're in a larger setting and you want to reach more people, it's important that you need to amplify. And so he just gets into a boat so he can reach more people. So he backs off and he lets the, the lake be that natural amplification. It's interesting that what happens is Jesus gets into the boat and sits. Because, you know, he knows you don't stand in the boat. That's an important thing to know. And, but the, the people on the shore, they're standing so what happens is the position of the, the teacher, he sits the position of those who are being taught, they stand. And I don't know if you guys would be willing to say, yeah, I'll stand for the entirety of your teaching. It's like, no, you're going to cut your teaching in, you know, by you know, 75%, then maybe I'll stand for a portion of it. But that's what they did. The, the teacher stood, or the, the teacher sat, the people stood. And so they were there, they were eager to hear the word, they were standing there listening. And so it declares he spoke to them many things to them in parables. The word parable is a unique term in the Greek. It's made up of two words. There's para and bolo. Um, para, if you're familiar with the Greek, like the paracletus, means to come alongside. So, so para means alongside. Bolo means to throw. And so what it means is to throw something alongside. And so that's the, the literal meaning. So in other words, it, it's, it's throwing an unknown truth alongside a known truth. And so that's what he does. He, he, he throws a something that you can either think it's, it's biblical truth and spiritual, or you can simply say it's a really nice story but I don't want to apply a whole lot into it. And so he throws these parables, these stories alongside a biblical truth. And I think what happens is that it's just really his mercy. Because if he were simply to state a truth, then the people would be held accountable to that truth. But when he gives them a parable, what he's allowing them to do is to prevent further condemnation. And by putting a parable out there, people are either going to see or they're not going to see. One of the keys to the parables is found in verse 14 here of Matthew 13, where it says, And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will hear and not understanding, seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of the people have grown dull, and their ears are hard of hearing. And their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and lest they should understand with their hearts in turn, so that I should heal them. The parable is something that's going to shine a light so that you can either say, my heart is here and I grasp it, or my heart is not, and I don't want any part of it. It's one of those things where if you had, um, let's just say you had 10 people in the room and one of them was Helen Keller. And you go and you, you turn on the light and all of a sudden everyone is there saying, oh great, thanks for turning on the light, except Helen Keller. She didn't need the light anyways. And so the, what the light does is that everyone whose eyes are open, whose eyes are able to receive, the light now helps. The light now guides. To the person who's blind, the light means nothing anyways. And that's kind of what a parable is. It turns on a light. And so everyone who responds, oh, I got it. And the people who don't respond, you are already blinded. Your hearts were already hardened. You didn't want to hear. But the people who were open, 
we're wanting the light now. Here's a little bit more light. Here's something where, oh, I can grasp that truth. And so he begins to now throw this parable out and speak this parable. And the parable means that I'm going to put one story alongside of a truth, something that, that you may not understand, but if you want to understand, you're going to grasp it. So he says in verse 3, Then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and birds came and devoured them. And some fell in stony places where they didn't have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. And when the sun was up, they were scorched because they had no root and they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and they choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when the disciples came, they said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered and said to them, Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but it is not, and but to them it has not been given. For whoever has to him more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But he who does not have even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah which is fulfilled. So as we look to this, he gives a parable. And within this parable, you have a sower who simply goes out to sow. And within that sower, he sows seed. Now you have four different types of ground. In verse 4, some seed fell by the wayside and the birds came and devoured them. It would be considered a wayside would be a path that would be alongside your field. So if you are scattering the seed and it falls into the field, odds are that's going to grow. But if it falls onto the path, which you're walking on and walking on and walking on, that's a hardened thing. The seed will not have the opportunity to get into the ground. And so because it's so hard, then the birds are simply going to come and eat all that seed that's on the path because it won't be under the ground. Now, some verse 5 fell in the stony places and where it didn't have much earth. In other words, you have a very shallow layer of dirt and underneath that you have rock. Well, because of that, he makes a statement where they spring up right away, but because there's no root. Um, we understand that part of that area of having a very shallow dirt and the rest rock is that the ground doesn't stay saturated. When the sun comes up, it hards it right away. No moisture, of course, no moisture. There's going to be no root. And so the, the roots can come, but because it's not going to soak in and water is going to be underneath where it doesn't evaporate, it's simply going to wither away. And then in verse 7, some fell among the thorns and the thorns sprang up and they choked them. So you have some falling among these other plants and those plants are going to now take up the nutrients, take up the spaces, and they're going to choke out the plant. And then, of course, the eighth or the, the fourth one in verse eight, but others fell on good ground and yielded crops, some 100, some 60, some 30. It's interesting that most commentators, most Bible scholars will simply point out this is three areas of a heart. And I'm not disagreeing with them. I believe that that can be a truth, um, that there are hearts that are, are super hard. There are hearts that are very shallow. There's hearts that are 
are choked out with other things. And of course, there's hearts that are able to receive. But I want to share with you um, a, a, a portion of scripture. You guys know it. We've covered it a few times. But in Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 34, let me read just a couple of verses to you so that you can kind of grasp what it is that... Um, that I want to share with you. Matthew 22, beginning in verse... Thirty-four. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, saying, testing him, saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? But Jesus said, You shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. So there's a commandment, and what God wants is you to love him with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. I want you to see these seeds and these soils not as just the areas of the heart. And I don't want you to erase what you've learned or erase what you've heard. But what I want to do tonight, I really sense by the Spirit, is to add more to what you already know. So, so take that, keep it, lock it in. But now I want you to take something a little bit more tonight so that you can grasp a deeper understanding. That when you have these areas of the, the soil, what we're seeing is this. If you take what Jesus said, the greatest commandment is love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Each one of these is going to be where I want to look at what happens when your heart is hard? What happens when your soul is shallow? What happens when your mind is all tangled up with everything else? And so it's not always just your heart, but sometimes it's your whole body that prevents the word from coming and taking root. There are things in my heart that have to be dealt with when it's a hard heart. There are things in my soul, the things that I'm longing after, that have to be dealt with. There are things in my mind that have to be dealt with. And when those things are dealt with, then the word can come and it can bear fruit. And then it bears not only 30, but 60, but 100 fold. You understand that there's three steps of, of um, additional fruit that comes depending on how much I'm giving of my life, of my heart, of my soul, and of my mind over to God and over to receive his word. So I want to see, first of all, just by looking at this, the sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, birds came and devoured. And so when we're looking at here, how does the heart receive the word? Well, it happens that very often that heart is going to be very hard and very fallow. There is two portions of scriptures I want you to jot down. The first is found in Jeremiah chapter 4, the first four verses. And it says this in Jeremiah chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. If you will return, O Israel, says the Lord, return to me, and I will put away your abominations out of my sight, and then you shall not be moved. And you shall swear the Lord lives in truth, in judgment, in righteousness. The nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him they shall glory. So put away all things, seek me. Verse 3, for thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, 
Break up your fallow ground. Do not sow among the thorns. Circumcise yourself to the Lord. Take away the foreskins of your hearts. You men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire and burn so that no one can quench it. So here Jeremiah warns them about being careful. Break up that fallow ground. Don't do have your... Um, put your heart among the, the thorns. Another passage in Hosea chapter 10. I want to read in verses 12 through the first part of verse 14. But in Hosea 10, 12 it says, Sow for yourself righteousness, reap in mercy, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord, till he comes and rains righteousness on you. You have plowed wickedness, you have reaped iniquity, you have eaten the fruit of lies because you trusted in your own way in the multitude of your mighty men. Therefore, tumult shall arise among your people and all your fortresses shall be plundered. So because again, your heart was hard, because you're not seeking me, there's gonna be devastation that comes. And with this devastation, we see here that as that heart is so hard, this bird comes and snatches away the seed. Second is they fall on stony places where it doesn't have much earth. I think there's a point where sometimes the very soul, the very part of who we are, there's no real depth to it. We want what we want and we don't want to go any deeper. There's a passage that you know well. We've covered it when we were there in the book of Genesis. But I want to read two verses in Genesis chapter 27. Just jot them down because I'll be too quick for you. But in Genesis 27, beginning in verse 4 and beginning in verse 25, it says, And make, this is now um, Jacob, when he's wanting the blessing from Esau. He says, And make me savory food such as I love, and bring it to me that I may eat, and that may, my soul may bless you before I die. Here's Jacob. His whole thing is, I want you to just tantalize my taste buds. Feed my stomach, make me happy, and then I will bless you. The same thing that he came forth where there in um, verse 25 of Genesis 27, um, after Jacob had gone near, it makes this statement. And then he said, bring it to me and I will eat of my son's game so that my soul may bless you. So he brought it near him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. Sometimes what happens is we just want stuff, and we just want stuff, and we just want stuff. And, and, and we're hoping that God will simply give us stuff. And a lot of times God will hold off giving us that stuff until we realize, God, I just want to be a steward of what it is. Anything that you give me, it's all yours. I don't need anything. I want to just be a steward of everything that you give to me. There's a really great portion of scripture that sort of identifies that found in 1 Samuel chapter 1. And you guys know the portion. And what happens is Hannah so desperately wants this child. And it says this in 1 Samuel 1. I'm going to read in verse 10, and I'll read through to verse 15. But it makes this statement. She was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. And she made a vow, said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, 
then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall come upon his head. And it happened as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli washed her mouth. Now Hannah spoke in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli thought she was drunk, and Eli said to her, How long will you be drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah, verse 15, answered, said, No, my Lord. I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink. And then she makes a statement, but I poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant a wicked woman for all the abundance of my complaint and my grief. I have spoken until now. And so she's just pouring out her soul to the Lord. Now what she wanted is, I want this child, I want this child, I want this child. And then she finally realizes, well, if you give me a child, I'll just give him back to you. Um, I want to glorify you with this child. Not just I want a child, but I want to glorify you with the child. And many times that's what happens with, with what we see is when our soul has no depth. We want stuff. We want the savory stew. We want all these things. In other words, I want the gifts and not the giver. I want the stuff. Um... And so often we're looking to just be very shallow with God. I want the stuff that you can provide. And God says, I want a depth of the relationship. I want your heart. I want everything in you. And so it's interesting how if the heart is hardened, you can't receive the word because nothing will penetrate because you already know what you want and know who you are. And you already are very clued in thinking I'm omniscient. I know everything. God can't teach me anything new. The other thing is with you know our, our very soul when, when we're caught up and we're only after the stuff and we're very shallow in how we do it. And then the last thing is, is the mind. When the mind itself is all tangled up with all other things. There's a passage in Romans, I want to share it with you, found in Romans chapter 1. Two verses that I'm going to re read to you. The first is verse 21, the second is verse 28. There's a lot in between them. We'll be looking at that in, the, in a little bit. But I want to read to you at least verse 21 and verse 28 at this point of the study. In verse 21, it says this, Because although they knew God, God is in their mind, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So although you know God, you understand, then you say, I'm not going to register you in my mind as who you claim to be in this word. And so what happens is if you're not going to give God that place within your mind, all these other things are now going to come in and they're going to choke out what God wants to be in your mind. And, you're, and I like what he says here, they became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. So their thoughts are the first things as they didn't recognize God. Their thoughts were then drawing them away. And then in verse 28, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. I think it's important to realize that yes, these are you know different areas of a heart, but it's also important to realize that there's a lot more of us than just our heart. And sometimes what happens, it's a good idea when the word of God is coming to say, is my heart right? 
Is my soul right? Are the things that I'm longing for, am I only longing for God or am I longing for this? I'm longing for this. What's going on in my soul, my very, the core of who I am and what I desire? And where's my mind? And then if you have those things and you get those three things in order, where you love the Lord your God with all your heart, you love the Lord your God with all your soul, you love the Lord your God with all your mind, you get those three things in order, and then you see this fourth thing, it falls upon the good ground and it yields crops, some a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. And so you see this, this additional. Now, for farmers, um, when you're actually planting grain, depends on the crop, is you're looking for um, an abundance in crop. In other words, if you plant 100 pounds of seed, you want to gain what? Well, you want to gain at least, what, eight to tenfold that. So if you plant 100 pounds of seed, you want at least, what, a 1,000 pounds of seed. You want, or, you, yeah, you, you, 100 pounds, you want 1,000 pounds. You want at least tenfold within it. But now here he says, no, it's beyond that. He said, you, you plant 100 pounds, you're going to get 3,000 pounds. You plant 100 pounds, you're going to get six thousand pounds you plan to under you're going to get literally ten thousand pounds now, that's huge for a farmer to realize wow not only do i have this it's beyond what i could even expect now that's the work of god and you realize that when you put everything of you into it god says listen i'm going to miraculously as you give me your heart your soul your mind all of it I'm going to allow my word to bless you beyond anything that you can even expect. So it's not just this natural ability that God's going to say, I'll give you a little bit here and I'll give you a little bit there. He says, I'm going to just blow you away. I'm going to overwhelm you with who I am and who you are. And so we see this incredible thing that comes through. Now, after you see these four types of seeds or these seeds going in four types of soil. It declares this in verse 10, and the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And it's important, why is he speaking to them in parables? What is the deal with the parables? Well, in verse 35 of Matthew 13, he says this, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet saying, I will open my mouth in parables and I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. So he says, I don't want to simply just open everything up. I'm speaking to them in parables because they really do not want to receive. Once again, I'm going to take you to Romans chapter one. I'm going to start reading in verse 18 and I'm going to read all the way down um, through verse 25. But in, in, Romans 1.18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So there's a truth that's being suppressed. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things which are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so they are without excuse. So God says everything around you declares that I am who I am and that I am this incredible God and you're not wanting to receive that as you look around to see my glory. 
So you are without excuse, verse 21, because although they knew God, they didn't glorify him as God. So keep in mind that we always think that the initial state of man is you don't know God, and then all of a sudden God reveals himself like, oh, wow, now I know there's a God. God says that's not the initial state of man. The initial state of man is you know there's a God. And then what happens is you don't want to believe it, and so you allow all these other things to model you, and so you believe that you've never even first believed there was a God. You always, God gives that first thing to you, although they knew God, verse 21, they didn't glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. They changed the glory of the incorruptible God into the image made like corruptible man. Birds and four-footed animals, creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. So we see here, as he does so, verse 25, who exchanged the truth of God for a lie, who worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed for every man. So rather than worshiping the one who creates man, we worship all of other creation or the things that we create ourselves. And so it's interesting how this is where the state of man is. And this is why here God speaks to them in parables because they really don't want to hear and their hearts are already darkened. And so he's going to give them a truth to say, you know, I don't want to believe. I will continue to walk in this path. And so that's why when he says in verse um, 10, and the disciples came to him and said, why do you speak in parables? Well, he answers it because it's been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. You are hungry. You are open. You're with me. You want to know. But it says to them, it has not been given. To them, they will not receive. They do not want to receive. They don't want to grasp these truths of the kingdom of heaven. In verse 48 of Luke chapter 12. He makes this statement, but he who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given to him, much will be required, and to whom to whom much is given to him, much will be required, and to whom much has been committed of him, they will ask the more. So God very graciously only gives them a little light, but if they want it, they'll get more light. But if they don't want it, I just think in that mercy that they don't have a further condemnation of saying, well, all these truths have been spoken and you walked away from it. And so it's important that they say to you, you want to know it, so you're going to know it, but to them it has not been given. Verse 12, for whoever has... To him more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But to whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from them. And I think that's important to make that note that even what he has will be taken away. And that's where we noted there in Romans 1, verse 28, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. They didn't want to receive, so God says, well, even what you have, I will take it away from you. And in verse 13 here in our text of Matthew 13, Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, and nor do they understand. So 
There, there are some who are just lazy and they don't want to know the truth. There's some who, you know, ultimately are very prejudiced against the truth. And so they're going to fight against it anyways. And so he's going to put a sampling of this truth. He's going to lay the story alongside of truth. And then if they want it, they're going to receive the greater truth with this message. And so verse 14, in them, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, saying, Hearing you will hear and not understand, seeing you will see and you will not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull, their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. So within that, we begin to see that they did not want to receive. Um, their minds and their hearts were closed off. There's a passage to jot down in Daniel chapter 12, verse 8, that says, where Daniel says, Although I heard, I did not understand. And then I said, My Lord, what shall be the end of these things? He said, I heard it, but I didn't grasp it. And this is what's happening. Jesus is saying, listen, hearing, you're going to hear and not understand. You're going to hear words, but they're not going to make a lot of sense to you. In other words, what you're going to hear is Charlie Brown's teacher. If you've ever listened to the, the Charlie Brown, the teacher, the teacher is wah, 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 wah. And they, of course, we don't understand anything she's saying. We hear it. We don't understand. But this is what it sounds like to that non-believer, to the one who does not want to hear the things. Hearing you will hear and you won't understand. Seeing you will see and not perceive. So you're going to grasp a something's going on, but you're not going to know the truth of everything. Why? Verse 15, for the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing. Their eyes, they have closed. Keep in mind, they close it themselves. They do not want to hear. They do not want to open their eyes. They do not want to receive. It's one of those things where I don't know if you've ever um, heard or seen where someone is trying to talk to someone else and they put their hands over their ear. They go, la, 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 like I'm not going to hear. This is what they're doing. They're preventing themselves. They're closing their eyes. They're closing their ears. They're closing their hearts. And he says, now I've given them this parable in the middle of verse 15, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts in turn that I should heal them. They do not want the truth. And if they don't want the truth, keep in mind that God is so powerful that God could make someone who doesn't want the truth to receive the truth. But what he would be doing is he would be violating their free will. I mean, God could say, I don't want to know the truth. That God, in his word, it could be so powerful. And I love the fact that, remember when Jesus was there, you know, after Lazarus had died, he was standing among the tombs, and he said, what? Lazarus comes forth. And so it was, I don't know who it was who first said it when I first heard it or where I first read it. But it, they made a statement that he had to say, Lazarus, come forth, because if he said, come forth, Everybody would have come forth. They wouldn't have been able to refuse the word of God. So if God wanted to speak a word and to force everyone through that word to understand the word, God could do that. But he says they, they don't want to know, so I'm not going to do that to them. They don't want it. They even have a smoking flag. I, I won't blow it out. I won't quench it. 
If they have a slight heart, I'll, I'll constantly be, be knocking and seeking, but they don't want to know it now. So because of this, I can't say a truth with all the power that I'm going to declare because they are going to turn. They are going to simply be moved. And I think that happens a lot where if you remember in the book of Acts where there um, in Ephesus, they were all shouting, great is Diana the Ephesians right now. There was a lot of people that showed up. They didn't even know what was going on. But because of everybody else, they got all whooped by, up by this crowd and now everyone is chanting, everyone is saying it. And it's, it's amazing how we all kind of do the same thing. You always want to fit in, even though you realize it's, it's not the right thing, but yet we're going to do it anyways. There was a, a video that I had watched, and there was a group of people who had got together, and what they did is they went into an elevator, and everybody stood backwards. They all stood backwards. So like 10 people in this elevator, and one person would get in, and he would look, and he would you know, walk in and he would not face forward to the door because everyone else faced backward. They would push it and he followed and random people time after time after time would come in and they were compelled to do something that they wouldn't normally do. And that's what God's able to do with his word. So he makes this statement, I'm not going to do this. I'm speaking through parables because if I spoke with the power that I am as God, they would turn and I would heal them but that's not what they want they want to continue in darkness so I'm going to let them be in darkness so he says in verse 16 but blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear for surely I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desire to see what you see and they did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it therefore hear the parable of the sower so he tells his disciples, you guys are blessed beyond measure because all these things the prophets wanted to see, what happens is this, they didn't see me, they didn't hear from me, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you here what is the heart of God, how does God work. And so he now goes to them in verse 18 and says, therefore hear the parable of the sower. I'm going to pause here for just a second because... We've always talked about, as we've gone through our studies, there's a law that's called the law of first. The first time that something is spoken in Scripture, it's a pretty good idea to keep that flow throughout all of Scripture, that you don't hear it once and then realize that's not the foundation that's being set. I can make it be whatever I want it to be versus what is this law of first declaring. Within the law of first, the very first parable that's ever been recorded of Jesus is this parable of the sower. Now what Jesus does is he's going to go on here and explain this parable of the sower. So keep in mind that as we go through all the other parables or as you study all the other parables, you have to understand that those parables should be lined up to this first one. You can't simply just jump and make it mean something else. So let's look to this truth. Let's look to what Jesus says. What is this parable of the sower? He says in verse 18, Therefore hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and he does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. And then he who received the seed, this is he who received the word by the wayside. Now, 
He who received the seed on the stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a little while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Now he who received among the thorns is he who hears the words of the, the cares and this world. And the deceitfulness of riches chokes out the word and it becomes unfruitful. But he who receives the seed on good ground is he who hears the word, understands it, and who indeed bears fruit and produces some 100, some 60, some 30. Now what I'm going to do is this. I'm going to share with you just a portion of this. In verse 19, where it says, He who hears hear the word of the kingdom, anyone who hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, when the wicked one comes and snatches what he has sown in his heart. Notice it's a heart in the very first parable. The very first, you know, the seed comes where it was the, the, the fallow ground. It was there on the wayside. That's the heart. So when, the, when anyone does not understand it, the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who received the seed by the wayside. So we note here that they never really hear. The word of God really makes no impression. It's there, it's on the surface, but the enemy comes and immediately snatches it away. It had no real effect on the person at all. Yet we see here, there's no effect on the heart because the heart is so hard. But in verse 20, he who receives the seed on the stony places is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself. Now, in himself means in his person. This is why I went to the word soul. Um, love the Lord with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. And so you have no root within yourself, within what you desire, within what you want. And through that, it makes this statement, you immediately receive that word with joy, but because you have no root in himself, yet endure for only a little while, but when tribulation and persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. There's a passage I want to share with you in John chapter 16, verse 2, and it makes this statement where, well, I'm going to read verse 1 and 2. It says, These things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God a service. And so what happens is this. There were going to be many who are going to be ostracized by community, who are going to be ostracized by family, who are going to be ostracized by rulers. And rather than saying, well, you know what? Jesus Christ is the King of Kings. He is my Lord. He is my family because he said already, who's my mother? Who's my brother? Who's my sisters? I'm his. And as we look to this, because of the world is saying you're not a part of us we're like but i so want to be a part of the world i so want to be a friend of the world i want to be an effective in the world well understand the, the the darkness hates the light and if you're in the light they're going to hate you and yet we stumble because we're we have no real depth and and we're, we're just so caught up we're not just completely where we love the lord our god with all our soul with the whole being of who i am I don't need stuff, I need you. And, and whatever you supply to me, I want to glorify you with it and I want to exalt you with it. This is that heart. 
And so we see, again, in verse um, 20 and 21, but he received on stony ground. This is he who hears the word, he immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself. Notice it doesn't say heart. It says it doesn't say he has no root in his heart. He has no root in himself, but endures for only a while. And then when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. And now in verse 22, now he who received the seed among the thorns is he who hears the word of God and the cares of this world. And then it says this, and the deceitfulness of riches. What part of your body can be deceived? Well, your mind. And so we're looking at this, and because of these ways that the Lord turned it, I just begin to pray through it, and you begin to look to Scripture, and you begin to see that there's a flow. So what happens is that you hear the Word of God, and yet the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. Now understand, it's not riches. It's the deceitfulness of riches. It's thinking that, oh, if I had this, or if I had this, or if I had this, in your mind itself you're not just focusing on God and giving him glory, but it's, no, but I need, I need this in my life, but I need this in life. So that's are those who, although they know God, they don't glorify him as God. What does that mean? It means that I know God, I know of God, but I'm not allowing him to be God in my life. In other words, I have God in my life, but he's not on the throne of my life. Well, if he's not on the throne of your life, is he the God of your life? He's God but not the God of you. You are the God of you if you're sitting on the throne. I think this is what's so important about these deceitfulness of riches. It's not riches itself, but it's deceiving thinking, I need this and I need this and I need this and I deserve this and I should have this. And God says, listen, just seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And everything else is going to be added. Whatever you need to fulfill that ministry that God is going to call you to, he's going to provide it for you. And I think this is the key. So we see, again in verse uh, 21, that here, yet he has no root in himself. Wait, verse 22. Now he who received the seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of the, this world and the deceitfulness of riches chokes out the world and he becomes unfruitful. So you have it here where, again, you have the first one. There's simply nothing, no impact at all. The seed is snatched. The second one, because you know there, there's no root, you simply stumble. There, there isn't any real depth. And the last one, and keep in mind that this third one makes a huge statement at the end of verse 22. And if you're a highlighter, if you're an underliner, you want to mark this. Because at the end of verse 22, it says... The deceitfulness of riches choked the world. And then it says this, and he becomes unfruitful. He's not bearing fruit. And now in verse 23, but he who receives the seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it and indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. And so the question is, is which person is saved? Is the first person saved? Is the second person saved? Because, you know, he heard the word, he received the word, and, and he sprang up, he was doing things, but then he falls away. Now, this other person is, is there, and they're, they're, they're hearing it, but yet the deceitfulness, and they're, they're, it looks like there's kind of fruit among it, but because everything else chokes it out, he says they are unfruitful. And the fourth one is simply the one who bears fruit. 
I want to share with you just one passage. You know it, uh, but I'm going to share with it anyways. Um, in John chapter 15, I simply want to read verses 4 and 5. You guys know it, but let me read it to you. Jesus says, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. So, if you see the third one, he's unfruitful. Is he something or is he nothing? Well, the bottom line is he's nothing. He's unfruitful for the kingdom. The only one here who it looks like in Scripture is the one who's saved, is the one who's bearing fruit. And so if you have that word, the, the hardened heart, and you know, you're, you're shallow in your soul, and you know, your mind is all cluttered with other things, here's the question is, how much of the truth of God and Him being God in your life is evident? A lot of people know of God, but they don't know God as God. They may know God as He's the one who's supposed to give me stuff, He's the one, but they have no true depth of relationship with Him. They have no desire to worship Him. They have no desire to glorify Him. God is a God who's in their life as much as I have, you know, work in my life and this in my life and that, and God is just a piece of the pie. If that's the case, is He really God? And so that's the question that here that Jesus is now, when everyone is in conflict with him and when they were rejecting him, he now begins to share these parables. And the parable is what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. It's the one when you're completely given over to him, as in, in John 15 makes that statement, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. And that much fruit is what? Well, let's just give it three numbers. 30, 60, 100 fold. You give it that bears much fruit for without me. You can do nothing. And so as we're seeing this, he begins to just speak out to them. Now he says this in verse 24. Another parable he put forth to them saying... He now is going to bring another parable. And with this, he now uses this term, the kingdom of heaven. So he makes a statement, another parable he put forth to them, saying the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while the man slept, the enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat, and, and he went his way. But when the grain had sprouted, produced a crop, and then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said, Sir, do you not sow, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Do you want us to go then and to gather them up? But he said to them, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of the harvest, and I will say to the reapers, first gather the tares and bind them into bundles and burn them, but gather the wheat into the barn. Now, at this point, I'm going to jump a couple of verses down to verse 36. 
Then Jesus sent the multitudes away, and he went into the house, and his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. So he said, He who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. The good seed are the sons of the kingdom. But the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all the things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of the fire, and there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. And the righteousness, then the righteousness will shine forth as the sun, and the kingdom of the Father, he who has an ear, let him hear. The reason I wanted to share with you that end result is this. Because in verse 24, where he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in the field. If you follow the law of first, you would have to say the good seed is what? It's the word of God. And you have the word going out, and then you have that which is good in your heart, but then you have the enemy planting other things in your heart. And you would think, well, that should be the standard of the parable. Jesus changes that. And that's the reason why this parable doesn't align with the law of first. The rest will but there's something distinct and unique about this because Jesus answers in verse 38, the field is, or he, verse 37, he who sows the, the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. There's an understanding that what happens is this. There is here a field. There is the world. And within that, there is going to be those that God plants, and he is going to say, these are the ones who the Lord plants. And I love that heart. So these are the sons of the kingdom. Now, along with that, verse 38 says, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. What you see is this. We're going to see as we look at these parables, there's two types of corruption, and that's what he's talking about. There is what's known as an outward corruption or an external corruption. And then there's this inward or an internal corruption. What am I trying to say? There's a passage here jotted down in, in uh, um, 2 Peter 2, verse 22. So 2 Peter 2.22, it's easy enough to memorize, but declares this. It says this, but it has happened to them according to the true proverb. The dog returns to his vomit, and the sow having washed to wallowing in her mire. There's a dog who has an internal corruption, vomits out. So what does he do? Well, the dog returns to his vomit. Dogs are nasty animals. That's why they lick people. And, and what they do is that they come, they return to the vomit, and what was the internal corruption that was expelled, the dogs do what? They eat it back, and they bring the internal corruption back. The sow is different. The sow 
having been washed in external corruption, immediately does what? Goes back into the mire and again covers herself with this external corruption. There's an external and an internal corruption. What we're seeing is this. Within the kingdom of heaven, there's an external corruption. God has the sons of the kingdom. The enemy comes in and he plants the tares. And within these tares, what happens is they begin to corrupt the sons of the kingdom. And they want to choke them out. And so this is what happens. Again, note verse 24. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. This is the son of God making the sons of the kingdom. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among them. These are the sons of the wicked one. But when the grain sprouted and produced a crop, the tares also appeared. Now understand that tares are what's known as a darnel seed. When it's growing, it looks like a wheat. As it, as it begins to mature, it looks like a wheat. Until the very heads of wheat are actually a, a corn. It's a solid thing. The way the darnel seed, it's basically just all fluff. There's no meat at all. It looks the same, but it's not once the final harvest is done. So the servants of the owner, verse 27, came and said, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. The servant said to him, do you want us then to go gather them up? He says, no, wait till the end of the age. So there's a passage I want to share with you found in the book of Revelation. It just simply declares this. Beginning in verse 14, Revelation 14, verse 14. Let me read down to verse 20. But it says this, and I looked and behold a white cloud and on the cloud sat one like the son of man having on his head a golden crown. And in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in the sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Another angel came out of the temple, which was in heaven. He also having a sharp sickle, another angel came out from the altar, and had the power of fire, and he cried with a loud voice and said to him, We have the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle, and gather the clusters of the vines of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust in his sickle to the earth, gathered the vine of the earth, and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city, and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridle for 1,600 furlongs. So we see here that there is going to be this harvest at the end of the age. We do see there's a the judgment of God at the end of the age. But that's why it says in verse 30, let both of them grow together until the harvest. And at that time at the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather the tares, bind them into bundles and burn them, and then gather the wheat into the barn. So you see the gathering of the, the, the tares, and the fire that came. So understand what a tear is according to what the first four um, types of the, the soil was. A tear is something that never produces fruit. It looks like it, it shows it, but it never truly produces fruit. And so a question is, is this, what really is fruit? Well, the bottom line is, if you want to know what fruit is, Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit, it's love. 
Um, everything else that's added from there, I think that's really the, the key to what the true fruit of the Spirit is. It is love. Um, the other thing that I think is important as far as the fruit, I want to share with you another passage. And in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, it talks about um, the praise, the fruit of our lips. And I think that's a beautiful area where love and worship. Now, along with love, along with worship, um, in Philippians 1.22, Paul talks about the fruit of their labor. There's the service that you do to God. And I think that those are the things that when it comes to it, the very first thing is, is just love. Do you love God? Do you love people? That's the beginning of the fruit. The praise of your lips. Are you a worshiper of God? And are you one who serves God? Something else that's unique that when it comes to fruit, and this is a statement that Paul makes at Romans 15, verse 28, but he, he makes a statement, I want to seal to them this fruit also. And that fruit was literally the giving of themselves. It was, I'm, I'm giving of my stuff. I'm giving of these things. And they were very generous in what it is. And so you see the fruit in those areas where one, it's, it's simply love, it's worship, it's service, and it's also being very generous, realizing that I'm a steward of everything that I have. And whatever God calls me to do with what His, it's His to dictate to me, not for me to dictate to me. And those are just areas where I think it really bears fruit to what the fruit is. So as we come back to this portion, we see here there's this external corruption. And, and so we see as the tears come in, and that happens where even in the church itself, there's an external corruption. The tares had come into the church. How do we know? In verse 31, he speaks a, a parable, another parable he put forth in saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and he sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds. But when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. So at this point, he talks about what is going on when we talk about this external corruption. He makes a statement, this is the kingdom of heaven. That what God does is he takes a mustard seed, which a man took and he sowed in his field. Now the mustard seed, keep in mind, is not the smallest seed in existence, but it is the smallest seed that someone is going to plant in their garden that they would sow to say, I'm trying to gain something from it. That's the smallest seed that someone would sow. Not the smallest seed in existence, but we see here that he takes a seed and he sows it. The mustard seed is the smallest. Now a mustard seed is going to grow into a mustard plant. It will not grow into a tree. But what happens is this, that what should have been something small and beautiful and wonderful begins to grow into this huge thing that's an abnormality. And then he makes this statement. It's the what we see here in verse 32. So indeed, it is the least of all the seeds, the smallest seed that you would sow. But when it is grown, it's greater than the herbs. So it should have been an herb and grow into an herb. But it's greater than an herb and becomes a tree. So the birds in the air come and nest in its branches. Now there are some people who say, look at how beautiful the kingdom is. It's so small. God makes it huge so that all these birds can come. Understand, you have to go by the um, what we see here is the law of first. Remember what it was said. 
Back in verse 4, and as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. This is not good. The birds aren't the ones that are going to grow, and it's the fruit of it. So when these birds come, these birds, according to the law of first, and there in Matthew chapter 13, verse 4, we see here, Verse 19, it makes a statement. So when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. He who receives the seed by the wayside. So now you have the wicked one. And what does the wicked one do? Remember verse 38? The field is the word. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The birds of this is something that's abnormal. Now what happened was the church was very pure and very powerful. But eventually what Constantine did, he says, hey, everyone seems to be a Christian. I'm going to make it the new religion. This is the official religion. So all these people came and did what? They joined Christianity and they brought all of their culture, all of their beliefs, all of everything. They said, well, I'm a Christian now. I'm a Christian. It's the in thing. And Christianity, the numbers grew, but what happened is this, it no longer became pure. And it became basically just polluted with all these other thoughts. And that's what happens with the kingdom. So the Lord says there's going to be an external corruption that happens. That the church that should be just a small, powerful, um, where there's a group that just truly has given themselves over to the Lord... All these others are coming in and they really aren't loving the Lord with all their heart. They're not loving the Lord with all their soul. They're not loving the Lord with all their mind. That God is, is the God of their own making and God is the God who is the giver and God is all these other things, but he's not on the throne of their life. And so you have this, which is bearing no fruit for the kingdom, now into the body and corrupting it. And they say, well, this is what Christianity do, is. Follow me. This is what we do in Christianity. You know, do what I do. And so we see here that in this first area, he talks about this external corruption. Then in verse 33, another parable, he spoke to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till all was leaven. And all these things Jesus spoke to the multitude of the parables and the multitude in parables, without a parable, he did not speak to them. So again, he says very simply in verse um, 33, another parable he spoke. And he says the kingdom of heaven. Now understand, he's saying the kingdom of heaven in verse 24, the kingdom of heaven in verse 31, and the kingdom of heaven in verse 33. There's always this switch that comes as he talks about the kingdom of heaven. And so within this, he says in verse 33, another parable, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till all was leaven. Now, what is leaven? Leaven in scripture is always a type of sin. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees. And keep in mind that over and over it's spoken, like in Galatians 5, 9 and Matthew um, 16, where he talks about um, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Be careful because leaven spreads. And leaven isn't an external corruption. Leaven is an internal corruption. Now what happens is this. If I allow sin to just take root in my life, then what's going to happen is this. Is that 
sin is going to simply measure out to someone else. You can't keep sin and say, well, it's only affecting me. It's not affecting anything else. And, and that's a lie. Let me tell you why it's a lie. Because if I'm harboring sin, when it comes to worshiping God, that sin is preventing me from having intimacy with God and surrendering to God and worshiping God with all my heart and all my soul and all my mind. That sin prevents me. So if I'm not worshiping God with everything that I am, what is my family seeing? What are my neighbors seeing? What are the people that, you know, in my job, what are they seeing? What are my fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord seeing? That here, I'm compromised and I'm okay with having God as a part of my life, but I'm not completely sold out to God. And, and keep in mind that that heart has to be completely given over, the soul completely given over. Because that's the first commandment. And when God commands you to love the Lord with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind, he doesn't say, hey, just love me with some of it. No, it's not a suggestion. It's a commandment. This is the first commandment of God. Be completely sold out to me. And when we're not, we realize, as I'm not, other people are being affected by it. Leaven leavens the lump. And so as here, she puts in this little leaven, she hid it in three measures, and then eventually everything is, is leaven. If you know what leaven is, leaven is something that, one, causes the dough to be puffed up. So that's the first thing you know. The other thing, if you're really into cooking, you realize that what leaven is, it's a rotting agent. It causes it to sour. It literally causes your dough to begin to rot. And so it begins to bubble up and, and, and rise. So you see those two aspects with leaven, pride, I'm puffed up. And the other is that pride just rots away anything that's as far as God and his authority in my life because my pride says I can do it I want to do it so right after the Lord talks about these four types of you know areas where where the word of God is and when it actually begins to bear fruit where it's someone who's completely given over to the Lord it's that good soil and he bears 30 60 and 100 and then he talks about be careful because in the kingdom of heaven there's going to be something that wants to prevent you from receiving the word, which is going to try to mess with your heart, mess with your soul, mess with your mind. And those are going to be external corruptions and internal corruptions. People who are not Christ are going to seek to lead you away and your own sin is going to lead you away. And I think this is what's so important as Jesus begins to continue in this teaching of what happens to those who reject me what happens is he's giving them a warning this is what happens but as you are wanting to bear good fruit he warns them be careful if you have this external corruption the internal corruption what do you do with it you get rid of it so that God becomes everything and so he makes a statement verse 34 all these things Jesus spoke to the multitude in parables, and without a parable he did not speak, that it might be fulfilled who was spoken by the prophet, saying, I'll open my mouth in parables, and I'll utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. He's going to share with them truths, whether they receive it or not is going to be up to them. And then Jesus, verse 38, of course, sent the multitude away, went into the house, he and his disciples, and he came to them, saying, Explain to us the parables of the tares of the field. And so he does. In verse 37, he answered and said, He who sows... The seed is the son of man. 
That's me. The field is the world. We understand that. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. The reapers are the angels. We looked at that. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels. They will gather out his kingdom, all the things that offend. They will gather out of his kingdom all the things that offend and those who practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of the fire and there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth and the righteous will shine forth as the sun and the kingdom of their father in the kingdom of their father and he who has an ear let him hear. So I want to share with you one thing in verse 41 and this is key because I don't want you to think, wow, I am so doomed. I bear no fruit because... You know, I sin. I want you to understand it's not about doing lawlessness. Look at the end of verse 41. It says here, he's going to gather out of his kingdom all the things that offend and those who practice lawlessness. It's not slipping and sinning. But it's when you have a practice of sin that there is no repentance. There is no acknowledging God. There is no confession. There is none of that. It's simply, I will sin and I'm going to sin the way I'm going to sin and no one's going to stop me. That's leaven. Or you have all these other things saying, no, you need it. Don't just focus on God. Don't just give yourself over to God. There's all these other things. Well, understand, the thing that gets me to heaven is what? It's God. It's the work of Jesus Christ. That's what gets me to heaven. And this earth that the Lord says, it's a vapor, it's a blip, you're here and you're done. And then heaven is an eternity. What do I want to focus on on this blip here? Because in heaven, it's all God all the time. And so we understand, I want to focus on him now because this, he's my access. He's the one who said, come, you're now my son, you're my child. Come and do this. Now, understand that God gives us so many things that we can enjoy in this world, but we seek first the kingdom. We seek first his righteousness, and all these other things are added. And so we can have these other things, and they're, they're beautiful additions, but in all these things, what? It's still, God, what is your desire for my life, and how do I live my life to put you on the throne to glorify you? So we see here this beautiful aspect of where God says, okay, here are the seeds. And so tonight as we're looking at, you know, here's your heart, here's your soul, here's your mind. Be careful when all those things are in order and they're completely, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. Then you bear fruit for the kingdom and you're locked in. However, be careful. There's going to be things that want to stir you up. External corruption, internal corruption. And now he's going to shift again to verse 44. And in verse 44, he says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid. And for the joy over it, he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys that field. Again, verse 45, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found a pearl of great price, and he went and he sold all that he had and he bought it. Again, verse 47, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which when it was full, they drew it ashore and they sat down and they gathered the good into vessels, but they threw the bad away. 
And so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, and will cast them into the furnace of fire, and there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. So we begin to see here that the very first thing he talks about, there are three points. We're in verse 44, again, the kingdom of heaven. Verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven. And verse 47, again, the kingdom of heaven. Now, the kingdom of heaven, it's going to be, is like a man, verse 44, who is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid. And in verse 45, the kingdom of heaven, like a merchant seeking the beautiful pearls. And verse 47, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragon that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind. There are those who look to the, these parables as the first one, being here's people and they found this treasure and of course the treasure's God and then we get rid of everything to pursue God and then again in the verse 45 God is the pearl and then they're going to sell everything they have to buy the pearl so in other words it's God is the object and we're the man well, understand that it doesn't flow when you look at verse 47, because the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind. So are we the one who are casting it to God to throw our dragnet into heaven and say, are we going to gather good? No, understand, it's always God. So when you see here in verse 44, it's God who finds the treasure. When you see in verse 45, it's God who's seeking the pearls. And in verse 47, God who cast the dragnet. It's always God. Now, how do you determine why are there three? Why does God choose three different ways to say the same thing? It's interesting that there's three different terms that are used. The first is, again, the kingdom of heaven, verse 44, is like a treasure hidden in the field which the man found and hid. You see the very first of the treasures, and let me just share this with you. I would call that Israel. The very first time that he sees this treasure, it's hidden in the field. So you have the world that's going on, and God comes and he says, Israel. And I'm going to take Israel, and I'm going to put Israel, and I'm going to isolate Israel off to the side. They are going to be sanctified for me. And that's what he does with Israel. So he finds this treasure and he hid it for the joy over it. He sells all that he has and he buys his field. God gives himself completely over to the nation Israel. And then he puts Israel there in a spot where he says, you're mine and I'm putting you in a special place. That's where he's at. And so as he comes, the very first one with this parable of the, the, the treasure, I would call that Israel. And then you see in verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls. Now this is something he's seeking after. What is this? I would call that the church. This is where Jesus is coming after the bride, where the father is looking for the bride for the son. And here it says the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, something that's sought after. And when he found one pearl of great price, he went and he sold all that he had and he bought it. Again, seeking after, and so we see the first one being Israel, the second one being the church, and then the, the third one, of course, being the end believers. 
And so you see that each of the, the, the ways that God deals with it, so you have the harvest of Israel, the harvest of the church, and of course the harvest of the end of the age. And verse 47, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind. You have this gathering of weeds and tares of everything that's there. Verse 47, which when it was full, they drew to shore and they sat down and gathered the good into vessels. So in other words, there's no, there's no escape, there's no exceptions. Everyone is now gathered at the end. And so it will be at the end of the age. Do you understand how now we're looking at the end? So that's why I look to, because of the third one being the end of the age, the second one being sought after, then of course, the, the, when you take a look at how um, Abraham sought after a bride for his son Isaac, and of course Isaac being the type of Jesus, and so, and then you, of course you just simply finds where... God calls Abraham. He says, you're going to be, you know, to me. And then through you, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and through that comes the nation of Israel. So we begin to see here that heart. And then, of course, in verse 49, so will be at the end of the age when the angels come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, and will cast them into the furnace of fire, and there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. And so... You know, we, we take a look at that, of course, then you deal with, you know, Revelation 20, and it concludes the same, you know, truth. Now in verse 51, it says, And Jesus said to them, Have you understood all these things? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. They are so smart. Now this is why they are the apostles and not the b-apostles or the d-apostles. They... they they go, yes, Lord. And it's so incredible that here, have you understood these things? And they go, yes, Lord. And they, and then he said to them, therefore, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out his treasure things old and new. He talks about the writings. And I love this. He says, every scribe instructed concerning the heaven is like the householder who brings out his treasure, things old and new. What is he saying the kingdom of heaven? It's like a scribe who dictates something old and something new. Well, what do we know that scribes have dictated something old and something new? Oh, yeah. Try the Old Testament, the New Testament. This is the kingdom of heaven, and it's written down for you and I in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And that's why as we were going through the book of Genesis and we were laying the foundations of everything that you would learn in the Bible, now as we're going through Matthew, once again we're laying the foundations of everything that you're going to go through the New Testament. This is the Lord. He said, have you understood all these things? Go, yeah. He says, all right, well let me help you a little bit more. Therefore, verse 52, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like the householder who brings forth out of his treasure things new and old. And so we see here that you have where God first shows himself as a holy God. And as he reveals himself as this holy God and one who demands holiness. And then he's going to reveal himself even further fuller to the person of Jesus Christ because we know that not only was God a holy God but he was a merciful God 
Remember now, the very first time that man sinned, God says you're going to be separated. The very first time that, that they came into the promised land and they sinned, God dealt with them with Jericho. The very first time that um, the priests came and they brought the unholy fire, the priests died. God always makes a law of first, but understand, after that, not everybody died. And so you still see that God, even in the priesthood, that there were priests that were failures. And he said, but I'm, I'm, I'm doing it initially to establish firsts so that you understand who I am. And then every time that it's not dealt with in that way, you're going to know I'm a God of mercy. But what happens is people read the Old Testament and they only see the first judgment. They never see all the rest of the times that God doesn't judge. The very first king of Israel, Saul, he judged dramatically. Yet David, a man after God's own heart, and God didn't judge all the kings the way he judged Saul. Why? Mercy. But when Jesus came on the scene, everyone always sees mercy, 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 and they don't see holiness. Now, why is it we only see the holiness of God in the Old Testament? We never see all the mercy. We only see the mercy of Jesus Christ, and we never see his holiness. Why? Because we think they're two separate gods. And what it is is this. God is manifesting the first part so that you really know who he is. Jesus is manifesting the second part. Both are manifesting both, but one highlights one over the other. The Old Testament highlights the holiness of God and, and speaks very, you know, quietly above all of his mercies. The New Testament speaks about the mercy and the grace of God, and, and but still speaks very quietly upon the holiness. They're both true. None of it's changed. But they're both real, you know, revelations of who God is. But in the person of Jesus Christ, there's a greater revelation of those mercies of God that you didn't always grasp when you're reading the Old Testament. It doesn't mean that they weren't there, it means that Jesus in his life is emphasizing something more. And this is why here the Lord says in verse 52, Therefore every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings forth out of his treasure things old and new. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished the parables that he departed from there. This here ends that area of the parables. Now I know you're thinking, well, we only have a few more verses. Go there. Actually, there should be part of the next chapter. So we're going to make that part of the next chapter. I'm going to simply end with the parables so that you guys can grasp what it is. So once again, just to give you one brief understanding of what the parables are, the parables are first and foremost, the, the four seeds or the, the four types of, of areas that the seeds fall into. And then you have where he talks about the tares and the leaven, internal, external corruption. And then he talks about what the true kingdom of heaven is as he calls Israel. He calls the church and he's going to call those at the end of the age. And so if you grasp that in that you know, very basic outline, you're going to go through the parable and you're going to oh, these things aren't that tough. These things aren't that horrible. There, there's a real easy flow that Jesus does. And he, he then clues it in by saying, listen, God is going to reveal himself through the old and the new, through what has been written in the old and the new. And understand, God hasn't changed. We just see him emphasizing another aspect of who he is. And so let that be something that we take with us as we continue to say, Lord, I want to be a part of your kingdom. That I want to understand who you revealed yourself in the Old Testament 
And I don't want to leave out the grace and the mercy that you showed with Jesus Christ. But at the same time, I want to understand this grace and mercy, but I don't want to leave out in my life the holiness. So when we looked at that area of, you know, when Jesus gave his constitution, we've talked about it, how the first of the constitution is you can never live up to it. But the second part of the constitution is once you come to Christ, here's a really good, you know, place to overlay your life. To let this, you know, to, to look and say, is my life matching up to these things? Here's how I can respond to God to glorify him. It'll never be perfect, but it's a pursuit that I can have. And that's what the law becomes. It becomes something that first drives me to Christ. And then it becomes that which reveals I'm walking with Christ. It's not that I have to do it, but I get to do it. And as the spirit leads me and empowers me, I'm actually walking those truths. So let that be the things in our heart. Amen. Well, Father, we do thank you for this word. We thank you for this passage. Lord, I know we covered a lot. And, and yet the, the outline is, is, comes out to be a basic, basic outline. So I pray that we can chew on this in the next days, in the next weeks, in the months to come. As we really ask you, Lord, what is going on inside of our heart, inside of our soul, inside of our mind? Are we truly loving you with all of it? Or are we just piecemealing? Where we maybe love you with all of my heart and most of my soul and the portion of my mind. Am I completely given over, Lord? Is, is that what you desire? And, and we know it is. And if that's the case, Lord, then there will be fruit. And so, Lord, we're just simply asking that you through your spirit would do that work. That you would reveal those areas within our lives our, our heart, our soul, and our mind that are not given over to you, Lord, that you can begin to, to just point them out and we can begin to surrender those things as you lead us. So do that work through your spirit, Lord, um, as we take heed to just those warnings of tares and leaven, external and internal, those things that will stop your word from affecting us and challenging us and changing us. And so we're so grateful that you sought us out, so grateful that you would say, I'm giving everything for you. And the same way that you did for Israel, the same way you're going to do to you know, the, the, the saints at the end of the age, you, you, you want children. You're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so we're so grateful, Lord. Let our lives just be a response of gratitude towards those things. We ask this in Jesus' name and all the saints of God said, Amen. Amen.